Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about the mastery of Alfred Hitchcock, featuring our very special guest, my friend and mentor, Ben. So I hope you all enjoy, and let's get right to it. So to start off, I would love for you to give a little insight on the production of Alfred Hitchcock, the people that he had on his team. I know we talked about that in other outlines, and I would love for the viewers to hear everything that you know about that, because I think it's absolutely interesting. Absolutely. A a little overview from Hitchcock. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Sampson. I'm a a professor of uh, cinema and media studies, and that's I believe where I met Emily, um, mm-hmm. more more f- official capacity, but we are friends now. Um, yeah, Hitchcock is one of those r- remarkable names in classic cinema because he starts in cinema when it's still this undeveloped silent cinema. I mean, he gets his start in the silent era and he ends, so when he starts making movies, his contemporaries were people like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, and F.W. Murnau, and Fritz Lang, and the great silent film directors. And when he, and he is the great silent film director of the British cinema, basically the only great silent film director of the British cinema, when he ends his career, he's, it's in the 70s. So he basically spans 50 years making a film almost every year, sometimes more than that. Um, So his career is really the establishment of cinema, in the world as a kind of art form. You know, when he ends his career, he's contemporaries with Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese and, uh, you know, Ingmar Bergman and Fellini. So these are, you know, uh, the spanning of his career, which is incredibly influential. So beyond being someone who made films for a long time, he's also this guy who established a lot of the techniques and pioneered a lot of the techniques of cinema. So. I've been fascinated with his career just on the level of when you deal with classical Hollywood cinema, when you deal with the kind of classics of the of the era, you're dealing with a lot of filmmakers who, you know, in their private lives may have been huge fans of cinema, but publicly or even like amongst their friends would never have like trumpeted themselves as film nerds. Uh, Hitchcock was a film nerd. His life was about making movies and um, and he was very open about believing that it was the great art form of the era and that one of his roles was to kind of help to push things forward in terms of developing the medium. And it wasn't like he did it alone. When he uh, first starts making films in the silent era, he's, there's a lot of things that go well for him. A couple key things that go well. He teams up with an editor at his studio uh, in England, uh, Elstree Studios, uh, uh, Alma Revel, who is higher up in the company when he first gets there. Once he gets a higher position as director, a couple of years later, he finally asks her out and they get married and they become a, both a, 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 you know, a married couple, but a, a filmmaking team. She is the best other filmmaker at that studio. And they basically go in together and they both spend time um, apprenticing, not just in England, but also in Germany during the great uh, silent cinema era. They were both huge 
So they they both worked underneath F.W. Murnau, and he was right in the middle of making the last laugh with this kind of free floating floating camera. Um, he was also part of the early and most serious uh, British film societies. He and his wife, and they would, uh, you know, screen the real art house cinema of the era. So the major two influences on Hitchcock would definitely be German expressionism and Soviet montage. He's really a guy who brings those two influences together. And during his time in England, he establishes, a, as much as he's thought of as the great auteur, he really establishes a team. And that team is Alma Rebel himself, um, Charles Burnett, who uh, was this uh, producer there and also a writer and wrote a lot of his early stuff, and Joan Harrison. So most of his team was actually women, and that actually went through the rest of his life. He always related much more easily and thoughtfully with women. He really respected women amongst most of the filmmakers of that time in terms of their ability. That does not mean he wasn't problematic with women, and we can talk about that aspect of his career because he is a problem in that regard in a huge way. But um, you know, Joan Harrison is basically a woman who, who is you know, a secretary from a middle-class family in England She's selected to be this, you know, she wants to move, work in movies. She's selected by Hitchcock very quickly to be his secretary. And within a couple of years is his main uh, creative collaborator along with Alma Revel. And she becomes this major behind the scenes producer of most of his great British cinema, 39 Steps, um, The Lady Vanishes, um, uh, uh, Young and Innocent, uh, uh, Sabotage. And she also becomes the early producer on his American work, Rebecca, uh, foreign correspondent, and um, uh, sab saboteur. So the the that key part of Hitchcock's life and career in the in the in the British era in the '30s, leading into Hollywood in the '40s, all, Joan Harrison has a huge part in that, along with Alma, in in not just like helping to develop the stories, but to kind of guide Hitchcock towards a more female focus, which he naturally had a bent of personality towards anyways. He was the technical film mind. He knew how scenarios worked. He knew how film language worked. He really loved the tools of cinema. They were the taste meters and he always ran everything by them. And in fact, most of the content that he was directing in that era, like Lady Vanishes, uh, like Rebecca, they were given to him by Alma or Joan Harrison. So it was this very much a team collaboration in the Hitchcock era, even though he painted this idea of the, the high auteur, he had a tight team that he worked with uh, in one way or the other through his entire career. That was basically his working method. Yeah, I think that his female characters in particular are very, very interesting characters, especially the characters that we're gonna talk about once we get to the movies today I just think that they're very they're just very complex and they're very intricate and beautiful women <laughs> play them sure. and yeah very just intricate interesting women interesting stories involving mm -hmm. women so moving on to more of his elements within his films I pulled this from a certain article so according to the article 10 reasons why Hitchcock will always be one of the great directors from the New York Film Academy he his directing style that's mentioned in this article talks about how he was able to use I'm like looking at the outline sorry <laughs> um 
how was it, how strong he was able to use those filmmaking aspects. This is going to be edited out because that did not make any sense at all. So, no for example, <laughs> um, start over with your sentence so you have a clean audio track on that. Okay. According to the article, 10 Reasons Why Hitchcock Will Always Be One of the Great Directors from the New York Film Academy, his directing style consisted of the strong use of the following filmmaking aspects. Mise-en-scene. He uses these elements to build suspense, climax, curiosity, and to develop a likeness for his characters. The script, he uses the screenplay to exercise his control over the audience, mainly putting emphasis on the main and supporting characters. The music always is able to create a high tension and is really good at building excitement and climax. And as far as the editing goes, the article states Hitchcock believed that film editing could only do so much for a film, whereas editing things correctly with the right music can set the perfect tone for a film. What he loved about editing and camera movement and the combination of the two things was he thought of it as pure cinema. And he was that guy who was raised before sound, right? He was, he was raised in cinema right when it comes about. He's born in the late 1800s. So he's born with the cinema and he's raised with the silence of the cinema. And like a lot of guys in that era, they really thought about it in terms of pure cinematic language. Now, he took to sound just about better than anybody at the time. He was immediately creative and thoughtful and saw it as another tool in the toolbox. And if you see Blackmail, which was a film he first shot as a silent film. And then when sound comes about, they kind of made him go back and reshoot large parts of it for sound. He immediately takes to the sound language and how to use it as another tool in the toolbox. So he knew what he was doing, but he loved anything with cinema that was unto itself unique. Yeah, and this is very much of the thinking regarding people who really did think about the arts in the era of cinema in the in the early you know 20 30 years of, of cinema where people are really trying to say like how is this different from the other arts it's not theater it's not literature what does it do that no other art form can do and that of course is what it should do i, I don't i'm never so strict with with cinema in that way because i think it can do so many things but for hitchcock and a lot of people like him cinema was you know the essential tools what, what he called pure cinema, the combination of images, sound, music, whatever tools you could use to create an emotional effect upon the audience. He, mm -hmm. You know, he could edit for action, he could edit for suspense, he could edit for symbol, symbolic ideas. Um, he was very, very uh, sly and, and devilish in his sense of humor. It, it's one of the real key aspects that a lot of people, I think, forget about Hitchcock's work is how funny it is. It's one of the reasons why it lasts so long. It has a real sense of humor about itself. Um, a lot of directors that are described as Hitchcockian have zero sense of humor, and in my opinion, miss that mark. I actually thought that this quote from this article regarding his camera movement was really cool. Yeah. Um, the article states, camera movement is one component that supports visual storytelling, but it's important to note why Hitchcock valued it so much. He believed that the camera should take on human qualities. It should roam and playfully look around the room for anything important. I love this quote. I can't really explain why. I just think it overall encompasses um, Hitchcock's work as a whole. Like that is really how 
he was able to use the camera, especially with Rear Window, because you get a little taste into the life of every single person in that film just from a guy sitting in a wheelchair with a camera. Mm -hmm. And I think that I just think it's so cool that he was able to take on like such humanistic aspects of everything and incorporate it in to a medium that everybody loves and cherishes so much but do it in very just different ways than what people were doing at the time he was very interested in implicating audiences and making audiences implicated in in the story and involving them and getting them to identify with stories he was very interested in cinema as an emotional engine as as something that could play not just play because that sounds very manipulative but engage with the the emotions of the audience part of that has to do with editing part of that has to do with camera work but he it, it, it's it's this with hitchcock it's this perfect combination of he was a technical genius he just really got the tools but his he was also this really kind of um obsessive figure about the things that interested him and the main themes of cinema that really interested him were implicating audiences challenging audiences um getting audiences to identify with people that normally they shouldn't be identifying with getting audiences to uh uh feel entangled into the lives of the characters on screen and then kind of implicating them into it it's about voyeurism which is what cinema is about anyways we all sit in the dark either in our living rooms or at or in a movie theater hopefully and we watch people who are led who are being watched without watching us back it's pure voyeurism we're spying on others hitchcock understood this you know and he understood the pleasure the kind of freudian pleasure, what we call scopophilia, pleasure in looking at others. In many ways, and it should be somewhat uncomfortable the way that life is boring and, and it's much more interesting to think that, you know, dark deeds are going on behind those closed doors. Another Yes, and that's, talk. yeah, and that's exactly what I was about to touch on. I love the theme. I love that particular theme of his films in and of itself because just the idea of these respectable very put together people that seem like they have it all going for them but what's behind the door or behind the window is something much more darker and oftentimes it's that battle between our good selves and our darker selves like with psycho <laughs> in particular um and i think that that act of and that pleasure of being able to watch somebody else go through those like you said it's not there's certain aspects to his characters that aren't pleasant to watch like if you think about notorious yes like Cary Grant isn't it, I mean we're going to touch on it more once we get to the movies but he's not a fun character to watch but there's something but yet there's something very intriguing yes about looking into his eyes and seeing that darkness and it's that battle between his vicious love for Ingrid Bergman and his vicious self that he's projecting yeah. and I mean that theme in and of itself in a Hitchcock movie is 
it's just very like you're not supposed to like it but you like it uh he really plays a, a, an awful guy to a certain degree yeah Kerrigan plays a, a not very nice man in in notorious and we're gonna you know talk about at least two films that are examples of how Hitchcock would do this, this and rear window. If you actually think about Jimmy Stewart, the absolute all American, you know, uh, movie star, one of the only true war heroes from Hollywood during the, during that, that whole era, you Mm -hmm. know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and everything else. He loved to cast Jimmy Stewart in very subversive roles that his, his character in, uh, Rear Window Jeffries is is a bit of a dark fella, and so is Cary Grant in Notorious. So is Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo. So is Cary Grant in other films that he did. You see these these very kind of compromised humans who are not perfect, and in fact, the people around them are kind of saying like, "You're scaring me a bit," you know, kind of all the time. It's just that there's someone else out there in the film who's a little bit even darker. But when I say a little bit even darker, I mean that. Like, they're just a little bit darker. You know, the the Claude Rains character, for example, in Notorious, is just a little bit darker than Cary Grant. But they're both jealous. They're both uh, insecure men. They both uh, are angry to a certain extent for at different times and different reasons with Ingrid Bergman's character, uh, uh, Ingrid Bergman's character. This gets into the theme of dark doppelgangers, which Hitchcock was very big into. He liked to compromise stars. He liked to compromise their personas. And he liked to always pair his leading actors with these kind of darker versions of themselves who were the actual villains. But you see the chain of identification. First, Hitchcock wants you to identify with the hero. It's Cary Grant. It's James Stewart. Yeah, they play in troubling guys, but you know how are you not going to identify with them? Then the film will compare them to the villain. And there's this chain of identification. If you identify with them, they kind of identify with the villain. And don't you now see some of the darkness lying in your own heart? And, yeah. and kind of one of the main keys to Hitchcock cinema is trying to get people to recognize the thrills they took in think the hypocrisies. Mm-hmm. That people acted like virtuous people, but really got off on a lot of uh, uh, naughty thrills in the world. So the first movie that is up on our list today is The Lady Vanishes. This movie came out in 1938 and was written by Sidney Gillian and Frank Launder and was based upon the story The Wheel Spins, written by Ethel Lena White and was directed by, of course, Alfred Hitchcock. This movie is about a young, rich playgirl named Iris, who is played by Margaret Lockwood. She's traveling into continental Europe and realizes that an elderly lady seems to have disappeared from the train that she's on. And with the help of Gilbert, who is played by Michael Redgrave, with the help of Gilbert Redman, who is played by Michael Redgrave, the two try to uncover the mystery behind where the woman went. So the themes that I got out of this film are claustrophobia, gaslighting, paranoia, and alienation. And this film... I like this movie a lot more than Shadow of a Doubt, and I think that they have similar themes. Sure. Um, but I think I like the way that the lady vanishes goes about dissecting those themes more, just because from a personal experience, Shadow of a Doubt is very triggering for me for a mm-hmm. lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm not going to go into that, but it just, I like the way that these certain themes were handled in this film. And of course, what made it great for me watching it was Michael Redgrave, obviously, because he's so charming and wonderful and, and amazing. I love the Redgraves. Okay, anyway. <laughs> I <don't either. laughs> so, the, whole, the whole clan. <laughs> the whole clan. I love all of them so much. Um, according to the article, The Lady Vanishes All Aboard, written by Jeffrey O'Brien on Criterion.com, he states that the cozy claustrophobia of the film as it moves from overcrowded hotel to tightly packed train compartment reflects the circumstances of the budget-conscious British film and British film industry of the time. For sure. <laughs> now, the Lady Vanishes, I think, is a fascinating film on several different levels. One, it, it is very in keeping with the picaresque adventures. Picaresque being an old word that kind of meant like an, an adventure that takes place across travel, across locations. And um, Hitchcock, who has a big hit early on with The Lodger in the silent era, which is a thriller, um, he had, you know, his major hits early on, like Blackmail, Murder, in the silent and early sound era, are thrillers, but he made a lot of different kinds of films. He was a, a working director in the British era, and he makes, you know, uh, uh, farm comedies and musicals and a lot of different things, that uh, boxing films and uh, uh, snow uh, skiing films. I mean, he, he makes films that are very outside of what we think of Hitchcock films. And, um, but right around the time he makes uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much uh, with Peter Lorre and uh, an incredible cast actually, um, in 1934, one, it's kind of a big hit for him too. It's, it's, a, it's a change in studio that he's making a kind of more creative freedom. Three, he's found Joan Harrison at that point. And they, it, it begins a role of, of his real career where he now is making thrillers, thrillers that happen across travel. They all involve innocent people, regular people who are non-exceptional. They're not like big ticket government agents. They're generally just civilians of some kind who are thrust into major espionage, world espionage. And they are innocent right the the innocent person kind of in danger and and thrust into danger what's lovely about um uh uh the lady vanishes is its focus on a female protagonist um uh margaret lockwood and um which is very in keeping with a couple of films he had done right around that time, like Young and Innocent, which also had the, the title in certain territories, The Girl Was Young. Um, he was becoming more and more interested in the female experience. And so when we get to The Lady Vanishes, you're dealing with a thriller plot, a kind of classic thriller plot, but now we're entirely you know, focused on uh, the plight of this woman and her being disbelieved and the kind of terror of a woman being gaslit in this kind of society where she knows what she saw but everyone is telling her she didn't see it so you, you have some, you know someone like a woman in this kind of powerless position who still nonetheless persists basically and 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 absolutely fights uh against the the mob to to say no i know what i saw and of course uncovers a, a major spy plot 
but it's a project that was that was developed by Hitchcock and Joan Harrison. Um, Hitchcock was involved in almost every script he shot, even though he took screenwriting on, he never took a screenwriting credit. Um, he worked extensively with the writers on every script. So you saw thematic and kind of story vehicle kind of consistencies. Beyond which he was just so good at shooting inside enclosed spaces. I love train films. Um, and I think with The Lady Vanishes in particular, I think it's very interesting how claustrophobia and gaslighting are so intertwined and almost connected because whenever there were scenes where she was being gaslit, it was always in these really tight, confined spaces. I got murder on the Orient Express vibes too. I, I'm probably like, I don't, I wasn't sure if I was way off on the other side no, of the no, world. No, no, what, what happens is the, also that the, the kind of gang of people, I mean, it, it's about her, but you do meet all these people at the hotel. So you have, you meet all these people at the hotel the night before, and it's this big kind of comedy. It's almost a romantic comedy at that point. And then it becomes a thriller when we hit the, the train. And it's not till the end where all the threads come together, of course, and all the people kind of decide to unite. And it even at many, in, in many ways becomes a, a, an anti-isolationist film. It's all about you got to get involved. Um, there's a little moment in, in, in the, the gunfight at the end where the guy's like, oh, you're a conscientious observer, huh? Well, you know, that's not going to do you any good here, sir. You know, better pick up a gun and start firing because they're not going to, it's not going to keep them from killing us. Um, it's, it's kind of that kind of a political message movie, a little bit of a, of a wartime message movie at the end. Um, it also is remarkable because what's the whole thing that everyone wants and who cares about it? It's the, it's the MacGuffin issue. Like what is at the end of the day, the secret code that the old woman is carrying? It's, it's a tune, you know, that, that it's a secret code hidden inside of a tune that she whistles. Mm -hmm. And right. you know, even Hitchcock said more than once, like the mechanics of this, the logic, you know, are absolutely out, out to lunch, you know, why, you know, a, a government would entrust you know, an important vital message to an elderly woman as their mm -hmm. only patient on this train. And yeah. it, you know, it's like, who cares? It's not about that. It's about the scenario. It's about the fact that everyone wants this thing and it's causing them to come into conflict and it's causing this mystery slash kind of suspense story to unfold. And it's just so breezily and, and, and beautifully done. And it has all of the, the things that Hitchcock does, you know, uh, villains who don't, seem like they're actually villains at first uh people with hidden motives um evil people hiding in the guise of good people at one point they they noticed that the nun is not really a nun right so mm -hmm. things that should be symbols of goodness ending up being like disguises for for uh uh the darkness that society has to offer like that's it's all very present. Yeah. yeah. And I got, it was actually really interesting that you said that because when we first meet Michael Redgrave's character, I'm, I was very off there. I just, I was like, is this guy for real? He seemed like he would be the quote unquote bad guy or the villainous doppelganger of the movie to me. I don't know. There was just something that just felt, but at the end, he's the guy, he's the guy. <laughs> the guy that ends up with the girl and the guy that kind of saves the day. So it's like a reverse. Once again, you have that dark doppelganger of respectable people and non-respectable people and how you go about 
intertwining them to create a thriller. Being, yeah, and who ends up being the really, you know, good people at the end of the mm -hmm. day. Next up is Notorious. This Notorious. movie came out in 1946 and was written by Ben Hecht. Is that how you say One of the name? great screenwriters of all of uh, cinema. He was, yes. He thought of it in his day as, and he was thought of in that day as, as one of his, the great screenwriters in Hollywood. Absolutely. And was directed by Hitchcock himself. Mm -hmm. This movie is about a U.S. government agent named T.R. Devlin, who is played by the magnificent Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. Who recruits Alicia Huberman, played by the magnificent Ingrid Bergman. She is the American daughter of a convicted German war criminal as a spy. As they begin to fall for one another, Alicia is instructed to win the affections of Alexander Sebastian, who is played by Claude Rains, a Nazi hiding out in Brazil. When Sebastian becomes serious about his relationship with Alicia, the stakes get higher and Devlin must, must watch her slip further undercover. So the main themes of this movie that I got out of it are good versus evil, trust, and identity. According yeah. to the article Notorious, the same hunger written by Angelica Jade Bastin on Criterion.com, she states, in Notorious, love assumes different shapes and presentations as a wound, a weapon, a promise, and a curse. For Ingrid Bergman, as the lusciously complex and raw-nerved Alicia Huberman, it's all these things. I love this part of the article. Yeah. I think that the wound, the weapon, the promise, the curse part of it in particular is exactly who Ingrid Berman's character is in this film. And I think she really did hit the nail on the head simply because of all the complexities of that one character in particular and then how those complexities come to life when she's with Devlin. For the first theme, good versus evil, um, Devlin is a government agent. So he is seen as the authority and is expected to do right by society in that sense. And then Alicia is the product of a German war criminal. And that is someone who is seen as an evil figure and does evil things. I think of the film very, very, it's hard for me to think of the film in terms of good versus evil, because it's a film about how compromised everyone is in their morality and the, the compromises of morality in life and the way life forces you to make compromises with your own morality. It's very Hitchcockian in, in, in that regard. Um, what Hitchcock wanted to do was a film about a, about, about a man who asks a woman to go to bed because she loves him. A, a woman who is in love with a man and the man who she's in love with asks him out of duty to have to go to bed with another man, which is basically this, this plot. It's a, about a very kind of quickly and um, uh, roughly kind of put together love story between Devlin and Ingrid Bergman's character and the Alicia. And you can sense the kind of what what I, what I'm always very touched by is you know, these two very kind of fragile, broken people. You know, Devlin is is so tightly wound, and obviously, like um, th this guy carrying huge chips on his shoulders, and he's obviously been hurt by women back in the day. He doesn't trust them, but he's falling in love with Alicia. She's a wounded bird who really wants to be loved by someone and really wants to be seen. It happens very quickly, the relationship. And then before they know it, he 
did not know that his mission was going to be to have to ask her to to get back into the arms of Sebastian, a man that you know had been in love with her back in Germany, but now lives uh, uh, you know in in Brazil. So um, it's this this triangle of what love asks us to do, and you know where do we find the kind of moral compass here? I'm in love with Devlin. And because I love him, I'm going to do this thing for him, but I kind of hate him for asking me to do it. And Devlin is in love with Alicia and has to ask her to do it, but doesn't want her to do it, but kind of expects that she'll do it. So it's this this tangled knot of relationships. And in the middle of it, you have Sebastian, who is one of the most sympathetic of evil people (laughs) in, in Hitchcock's films. So you have all of these people who are really compromised in their character and really in love with each other to certain degrees, different men in love with with Alicia, Alicia in love with with Devlin. And it's really much more this dark romance than it is a thriller. There's not many thrills in it, truth Mm -hmm. be told. Yeah, there isn't a lot in it. It's mainly just, I feel like the sole focus of the film is mainly just Devlin and Alicia trying to navigate all of the ins and outs of her relationship with Sebastian and basically her relationship with Sebastian is just put there because it's Devlin's job. One relationship that is set up affects one relationship that is really meant to be. Yeah. Well, it's also about social prejudice and it's about the, the, the prejudices that society has against a woman who sleeps around Alicia, the, 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 title of the film notorious is in reference to alicia she is notorious she's notorious for being a player for being an what in the day would have been called like an easy woman a fallen woman um who parties and sleeps her way through existence uh many of the early party scenes in the film had to be toned down by the Hayes code they but they, it was meant to highlight the fact that she's this woman who of, of bad reputation is what they would have said back in the day. Mm-hmm. And Devlin hates himself for falling in love with a woman of a bad reputation, but finds himself sympathizing more and more and more with her and why she leads this life where she's trying to anesthetize her pain. And the film kind of bends over backwards to point out the deep hypocrisies of society towards someone like Alicia. It's a very interesting film on on that level from a a feminist perspective because the film is really on her side and against the prejudices of the men who are constantly using her. It's really this woman trapped in a world where men are constantly using her and, and defining her and exploiting her and still hating her in the midst of it, you know, mm-hmm. grateful that she's willing to sleep with this guy to get the information, but they hate her for it. Uh, at the heart of the film, beyond all of that, to me, it's it's really much less a suspense story, like so many Hitchcock films, and much more a relationship story. Relationships and the problems of romantic relationships is one of the chief themes of his films. Mm-hmm. That'll definitely carry over into Rear Window, which is entirely about that topic. Yeah, I think that there was another really cool quote in this article in reference to Alicia where Beston states, she's neither projection nor perfectly perfumed fantasy. 
The men who seek to determine her fate use her body as a weapon, believing her to be a femme fatale. But the film never loses sight of the fact that Alicia's truths are more complicated. From this angle, Notorious becomes a consideration of what happens when a woman's sexual history frames the totality of her identity. Absolutely. I love that line because I think it reinforces a woman's quote-unquote image over her truth. I think that in a lot of ways, Alicia is looked at as what we would see now as somebody who is being objectified in a lot of ways because she is essentially put on a plate for a man and for a man's approval. But I think her being caught in this tangled web of complicated love with Devlin makes it so much more complex. And she's constantly seen lusting over Devlin or going after Sebastian and she's never really practicing the idea of individualism we never really see her being an individual in the sense of um her I don't want to say her standing up for herself but just her being alone by herself without a man by her side she's always surrounded by the male gaze in particular and I think the audience is drawn to that type of sex appeal simply because the male gaze is the only gaze that continuously flows or follows her throughout the film. Yeah. And she really has no recourse, you know, she, she has no escape from it. And I think our sympathy for her is a sympathy that, that develops because all she can do is kind of survive this experience. Um, she, has decided to allow this to happen to her because she's in love with Devlin. But Devlin keeps treating her like, you know, like crap. And, you know, the, the world of this film is treating her like crap. And she can persists in being a brave spy in the midst of all of the double standards and hypocrisies of male judgments and, and exploitation around her. To me, that's the, the, the beauty of, of the film, which was much more adult. Absolutely. And I think that another really interesting part about Alicia is that she represents a lustful person, but from my perspective in particular, she's filled with desire but lacks potential. And I think Devlin unlocks that potential within her because she ha- I, she comes across as a character that has a lot of confusion and uncertainty simply because she's in the mirror image of her father and her father has done a lot of these very harmful things. And I think she, in that sense, when we go back to that conversation about individualism, she doesn't really know how to be her own person. She's in her father's shadow. And I think Devlin unlocks a certain level of sensitivity and security within her. And that is why they're as attracted to each other as they are, because he brings out something else. He brings out the Alicia that's known as the individual rather than the Alicia that's was tied to her father's side. Agreed. She, he offers her a chance to live in a way that is no longer tied to the shadow of, you know, the dark Nazi deeds her father did and, Mm. you know, a way to kind of come out of that. And she wants to be loved and he loves her. It would be lovely to, to have a film like that where you know she realizes that she doesn't need anyone to be her own self but it's a it's a film about love it's a film about love as dark as love gets in Mm -hmm. in a certain way and the dark things that 
that we do for love. I think we we love her because she's willing to do these things that she hates out of love, you know. And mm -hmm. there's a, a pathos and a tragedy to it that uh, is incredibly compelling. And when they come together at the end of the film, you know, it's it's not insignificant. It's a very powerful moment. Yeah, I think that ending of the film represents them going off together and finding freedom together as a couple away from all of these corrupt, manipulative, destructive beings in her life. She's now finally with a man that doesn't necessarily have the full-on male gaze, more so a gaze out of pure like admiration and romance. And I think that level of open-endedness when it comes to the ending of them driving off and starting their life together, it's very powerful because once again, you have the door. You have Claude Rains, was it? Or yes. Claude Rains, he goes through and the door closes and you get the idea that something bad is going to happen to his character because of what he's done. But on the other hand, you have this sense of freedom and love for the couple that are able to go on and start this life together so well, they've escaped the inside of the home right mm -hmm. in hitchcock films the home is always a very threatening place and the deeper you go into the home the deeper the secrets are next up we have rear window this movie came out in 1954 and was written by john michael hayes with the short story by cornell woolrich and was directed by hitchcock this movie is about a wheelchair-bound photographer named L.B. Jeffries, who is played by James Stewart, who spies on his neighbors from his apartment window and becomes convinced that one of them has committed a murder. And with the help of Grace Kelly's character, who plays her girlfriend, they uncover the murderer. So the, fil the films, the themes in this movie are voyeurism, obviously, self-reflection and morality. According to the article Hitchcock's Study in Voyeurism, Rear Window, written by Wes Hobridge on hobridgenoir.medium.com, he states, it is interesting to consider that Jeff's boredom is really what stirred his instinct to voyeurism in spying on the lives of his neighbors. Hitchcock's telling of this important story also proves how this kind of voyeurism can cross into obsession and also make one question whether Jeff wasn't somewhat predisposed to it because of his always functioning eye as a photographer as a photographer yep. so what i got out of this quote and what i got out of the film in general is that jeffries is the voyeur and the camera is the spy because the camera is able to capture the sexual desires and the relationships of the neighbors i think i think less of the the people across the way as being um they, they are fully you know their own people but one of the themes that that was not listed and i think is the chief theme of this film outside of voyeurism the other chief theme would be men and women it's again a film about relationships the entire thing is a metaphor about relationships you have a guy who is deathly afraid of getting married he's this man of action as the film pans around his as the camera pans around his apartment at the very beginning of the film, we see all of this stuff that kind of describes how he got into the accident. He's a, a war photographer and an action photographer. And, you know, and you see the, the, the auto accident on the speedway that put him in the, in the, in the cast. And you see, you know, all this very masculine paraphernalia as you walk around the room. And then you see this negative image of, of a glamour cover that he did for a magazine but it's not the positive image it's the the print negative and it's been framed 
is very difficult and gendered view of women. And he does not think that Lisa, his paramour, and the you know, played by the goddess of cinema, Grace Kelly. Yes. You know, the, the woman where we're all thinking like, what the hell is wrong with you, Jimmy Stewart? Mm-hmm. Um, and she seems way more interested in him than he seems in her. She seems much more sexually active than he seems in her. So we have this troubled relationship in his apartment. When you look out the apartment at what he's looking at, you see all of these doppelgangers that are representations of him and Lisa. You see all these troubled relationships. You see the the newlywed couple, and you see a man who's not as enthused about this newlywed sex, you know, uh, sexual adventures uh, as his newlywed wife is interested. That's very Lisa. You see Miss Lonely Heart. All the women kind of represent Lisa, Miss Lonely Heart, Miss Torso. There's many scenes that make that explicit. Uh, And and Mrs. Thorwald, who is murdered. And all the men across the way, you know, the guy who's struggling with midlife crisis and trying to come up with an artistic song. He's paralleled with Jeff. Thorwald is paralleled with Jeff. The, The newlywed husband is paralleled with Jeff. They're all paralleled with each other. And you see these manifestations of what's happening with Jeff projected across the way. So for example, the night where Jeff and Lisa have their big blow up, right after Lisa leaves, we hear the crash and the scream. It's right after their argument that we hear the murderous argument that's going on across the way, because Thorwald is, of course, the dark doppelganger for Jeff. Mm-hmm. Jeff troubled by his relationship, so is Thorwald, and Thorwald is doing something to fix it, mm-hmm. <laughs> something Jeff would never do. I will say when, when it, you know, when Lisa finds the same passion as Jeff, right, when in the scene where Lisa is is a skeptic. She walks into the scene and utter skeptic and kind of horrified at this guy that she's dating, uh, how dark and, and voyeuristic and awful he's become. And by the end of the scene, she is absolutely on his side and absolutely a believer. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's those great transitions because it's- My biggest question is, do you think that the neighbors are a reflection of Jeffrey's own mortality in a way? Because- of what they represent as far as being the mirror of certain relationships i I, i'm not sure if he's struggling with his mortality so much as he's just in that kind of midlife crisis he's Mm. you know he looks up and and sees the 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 music composer and the music composer is hearing an ad saying you know are you feeling uh down in the morning are you feeling listless are you getting that middle-aged uh, lack of energy and the guy right he changes the channel and mm-hmm. because he can't stand to hear his mm-hmm. mail being read by this announced this advertisement on the news well that's jeff that's jeff too jeff is reaching that age where uh he he he's starting to to feel a little bit older and and and, and a bit emasculated. The whole film, in my opinion, is about uh, relational insecurities, uh, sexual dysfunction, uh, midlife crisis. It's all about that. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be a delightful thriller uh, shot entirely from the almost, for except for a couple of scenes, the camera is entirely inside that apartment watching uh, as everyone else is doing, so. Mm-hmm. 
So according to the article, Rear Window, a masterpiece of visual cinema and sound design on filminquiry.com, the article states, Rear Window develops into an immersive world and Alfred Hitchcock expertly inserts us directly into the environment to the extent that we have no choice but to, come, but to become involved in the whole ordeal. We are accomplices, if you will, in this viewing party of Jimmy Stewart's. And I think that that kind of goes along with what we've been saying about voyeurism as far as having a view of other people in the world. And I... I don't really want to say that I don't know if making assumptions is the right mm -hmm. frame of context, because I think in a lot of ways, the characters in this film are very quick to judge each other, especially the whole sequence when the dog dies and the woman comes out and she's like basically bashing the neighbors and saying, what do you like? You guys just were all supposed to be nice to each other. You guys don't even care, like calling them out on what they should be doing. Right. And it's part, I think that also plays a huge part in the importance of knowing the full story. And that's what Grace Kelly's character, her name's Lisa, correct? Mm -hmm. That's what she represents, especially when she goes in and finds the murderer. She's trying to get the whole story. So I think the way that that quote kind of encompasses the whole film, um, as far as self-reflection, as far as relationships, as far as voyeurism, I just, I loved that article or that piece of that article in particular because of how it encompasses all of those themes as a whole. I think that a lot of what Jeffrey sees with the neighbors represents what he hopes to have with Lisa and vice versa. So the article also talks about the idea of breaking that illusion where the audiences feel like they are in the space with Jeffrey's rather than looking on as sure. observers because they are immersed in whatever aesthetic or whatever world that Hitchcock creates. And he's so good at creating those kinds of tones and those kinds of worlds. Um, you just can't help but get sucked into whatever he dives into, even though it can be invasive sometimes. Let's talk about Psycho. I mean, this movie was written by Joseph Stefano and was based on the novel by Robert Blotch. It's about a secretary from Phoenix, Arizona named Marion Crane, who is played by Janet Leigh and embezzles $40,000 from her employer's client. She goes on the run, checks into a hotel room by a young man named Norman Bates, who is played by the great Anthony Perkins and who, is con who ends up being controlled by his mother. The themes of this film are estrangement, voyeurism, human vulnerabilities, and victimization. So... This film for me in particular was very interesting upon first watch. I watched this movie for the first time when I took Ben's intro to cinema class because he was my film professor prior to us becoming mentor-mentee relationship and friends, of course. And at the time, I heard the hype of Psycho. I knew a little bit about it. The shower scene was about it. Um... And I think rewatching it specifically for this episode and reviewing it and looking at other analyses, analyses, analytical articles, I have a better understanding of the film and I have much more respect for it after a second rewatch because I think the first time I was just kind of like, okay, it's psycho, whatever. 
Um, yeah. But there's this one article in particular that Ryan Lynn wrote for Los Angeles Times. His article is called A Literary Analysis of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. He states, although there in, in reference to Marion Crane and Anthony, per and Anthony Perkins and Norman Bates, although their duality might be obscured by having opposing roles in the plot, Hitchcock relies on film techniques and symbolism to portray the doubling of Marion and Norman Bates to voice his opinion against a repressive society. So when we talk about a, a repressive society, we're talking about the act of controlling or restraining a person to believing whatever it is you want to believe or to go about um, living in a world where there's social constraints in a lot of ways. And what I got out of that was how Norman is able to control the narrative of what happens to the guests when they come into the motel. He's big on controlling and being the main dominant focus on what happens to everybody in the space. And because of that, nobody ever has time to uncover the quote unquote mystery because Norman is always one step ahead of the game. And we see that within the shower scene in particular. Really protecting his mother. I mean, he's just, you know, he's just being a good son protecting yeah. that mom. <laughs> but that's also where the dark doppelganger comes from because whenever he goes about killing anybody in the motel, he takes on the persona of his mother. No. And am I wrong? No, you're right. I, I would also argue that Norman is the dark doppelganger for Janet Lee's character. That they're that they're that they're compared that way in the film. The film compares them that way when they get together. She's she's a good person who's done a little sin, and he seems to be the same kind of person. He's a good person on the surface who's done a little sin, and. More like um, a big sin, but okay, continue. Exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> but in his mind, he hasn't done the big mm -hmm. sin. His sin in his own mind is covering up for his mother. He doesn't know that his mother is him, <laughs> and he's the one doing that. So when when she gets to that scene where you know they're talking about traps and we all find ourselves in these traps we can't escape, you know, she feels that that not only empathy with him, but that that kinship. You know, she understands that this guy is kind of lost in this trap that he's found himself in, at least the, the level of it that she can see. She can't see it all. And that is another kind of key aspect, what we see versus what we really, you know, see and understand about people. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so she feels that kinship with him. That's why she's decided to go back. Um, so I, I would argue that he's the dark doppelganger for her. He's also a person that the film sets up to replace her. It's very odd to have a, a, a lead actor killed off about 30 minutes, 40 minutes into the film. And it seems like people are just watching an Alfred Hitchcock Presents plot. You know, they're watching television is what it feels like when they're watching that first 40 minutes. And then all of a sudden, a woman is brutally murdered in the shower in a scene you would never have seen on television. And all of a sudden, the rest of the film just kind of becomes about the mystery of Norman Bates and that Bates Motel. We kind mm -hmm. of lose a protagonist. And the whole film kind of selects three different semi-protagonists, the, the, the sister, the, the boyfriend, and Norman himself, as these kinds of people are going to take us into the mystery, but they don't really even register. It's, it's such a traumatic event that has happened to, to Janet Lee's character that, you know, 
the whole rest of the film is really about kind of understanding what the hell just happened. Yeah. I think there's another really important line that Lynn states in the article where he says that the viewer continues to find out that Bates Motel is another place of repression in which Norman is driven psychopathic because of his repressive mother. Norman's mother represents repressive authority as she was abusive and controlling of Norman during his childhood. So Bates Motel symbolically represents society that Marion is running away from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made the point to kind of dive into more of an analytical standpoint from that specific article and quote alone, mm-hmm. because I think that represents that the motel represents the consequences of Marion coming home from what she is trying to run away from, because you see that especially within the shower scene, that whole consequence of you're coming back to a repressive environment that doesn't want you here. And Norman is very much in his own head all because of the whole dark doppelganger theme, especially. Um, And the motel is very much his domain. And I think that he makes that very clear, especially when it comes to killing Marion off. And I agree with a lot of what you were saying about how unusual it is for the main character to be killed off so early on in the film, I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, well, what's the film going to be about now? Because I thought that Janet Lee was like the main person in this movie. And I was so confused. And she was the only, you know, known actor on a big level. Perkins was somewhat known. She she and he were the only names. Hers was the bigger name. Yeah, and, for sure. And outside of that, just on a film technique level, Hitchcock during that whole opening right after janet lee decides to to uh when you're talking about repression well she's found herself in a repressive society where do we find her in a hotel you know registered by the hour because they they're not allowed you know at that time to be an unmarried couple checking into a hotel together so they're lying to the hotel the she's lying to her boss and to the boss's you know uh uh uh, real estate prospect, the guy who comes in, um, she's she's navigating this world of of you know appearances and who she's supposed to be versus the reality of what she's living. You know, she's supposed to be this this good woman who's holding down this good job in Arizona and living a good life, but she's you know seeing a man out of marriage on the side and. You know, she has all these real money issues. So the, <laughs> the, the things that are hidden about her life are obviously reflected in what's hidden in Anthony Perkins's life. Um, outside of that, it's also the Kuleshov effect. The, the, outside of that, the, it's, it's also the fact that he's using editing to get us to identify with her. When she starts her voyage, the film becomes almost entirely constructed around her looking at things, uh, seeing what she's looking at, and then returning to her gaze and trying to construct what's going on inside of her head. It's an effect that Hitchcock talked about a lot. And it's actually based out of Soviet montage and the idea of the Kuleshov effect. And us, through the act of kind of seeing what people are looking at and returning to their faces in cinema, constructing their psychology we are constructing their kind of mindset and identifying with them and kind of thinking about what they're thinking and force the film is forcing us to kind of go into their head spaces and, and be worried 
about their thoughts and what they're thinking about and what's going to happen to them. We're so firmly inside her headspace through the editing techniques that Hitchcock is using that when she's murdered, it, it's like we've been ripped violently away from somebody that we have now come to really identify with. She's not just murdered from the world, she's murdered from us. And that makes the kind of ripping of the film in, and the, the, the thrusting off into a new direction immediately uh, uh, very traumatic. And we're all very traumatized by the murder. You know, we're kind of left wondering what to do. But even though we've identified with her up to this point so thoroughly, the moment Norman comes in, sees what he thinks his mother has done and decides to clean it up, we start to worry that he's going to get away with it. We've been on Marion's side this whole time, and now the film is implicating us in the murder. The film is quite literally implicating us in the crime and in the cover-up of the crime. Hitchcock has us because he's he's caused us to kind of identify and fall in love to a certain degree with Janet Lee's character to identify with her as a friend at least and then he rips her away and immediately asks us to be kind of culpable in in the guy getting away with the crime and the mom getting away with the crime and we are immediately on the the other side of identification we're now identifying with the criminal it's very dastardly but mm -hmm. it's very effective I think in particular with that peeping tom scene that we have with norman bates i mean obviously it's an example of voyeurism but just to set the scene up for the viewers marion has dinner with norman after she checks in she goes back to her room and norman's office is right next to her room and he takes the painting off the wall and looks through the hole in the wall and he's watching marion get undressed and we get a little glimpse of who Norman Bates might be as a person, because I think if I remember correctly, this is at the specific point in the film where we don't really know a lot about him quite yet. And I think it definitely sets the scene as far as him looking like the quote unquote respectable person in the form of this boy next door who's yes. by his mother's side and can do no wrong. And it's definitely a really great example of, oh, somebody looking normal on the outside, but harboring very dark, disturbing secrets exactly. on the inside. And exactly. especially when it comes to the whole taxidermy scene as well, like he tells Marion that he enjoys taxidermy and says that the hobby quote unquote fills his time rather than passes the time. I mean, taxidermy is just it's such a creepy thing in and of itself but when you put that in a room with norman bates and marion crane it's it's eerie it's an, it just is very eerie atmosphere to think about um but i think the way that hitchcock creates that respectable person that we talk about a lot i think that with psycho in particular it does a really great job of highlighting that and like you said it's very unique that we identify with somebody like Norman for the rest of the film because we are so used to that classic Hollywood take on identifying with the main character or someone that can be seen as a hero of the movie and I think for people that are unfamiliar with Psycho Marion does a little bit represent that main heroic person and we don't expect to be on Norman's side but that's another thing too it's like we're in the perspective of Norman but at the same time we're not necessarily on his side because he represents something so horrible but we're taken into his world unexpectedly 
it's the final culmination, I think. It, it's it's one of the culminations of a theme that's running through a lot of Hitchcock's work, even the films that we've been talking about today. You know, there are no black hat, mustache twirling villains in Hitchcock's work, right? The villains in uh, Lady Vanishes, they seem like respectable people, even, even sometimes disguised as virtuous people like the nun. You know, in Notorious, Sebastian is not some, you know, Nazi scumbag, you know, you know, railing in some dark dungeon about, you know, the Jews and all these people, you know, he seems like a very, he lives with his mother, you know, he, he seems like a very respectable man. Lars Thorwald seems like a very respectable man and a normal guy, just a regular guy. In fact, when he shows up at the end of Rear Window, he's like, what do you want? You know, he seems so pathetic and so sympathetic to a certain degree. Norman Bates is the ultimate kind of expression of that. He's not only sympathetic, he's the boy next door. It's quite literally Hitchcock saying, you know who you really need to be worried about? Not the, the, the you know, the evil people out on the, the streets who seem like they might be uh, uh, bad. It's the boy next door that you want your daughter to date. She doesn't want to date him, but you want your daughter to date this, this Joe College all-American kid next door mm -hmm. who... Even the film shows has his own private kind of porn stash and has, you know, peeping holes and is really, you know, an effed up guy. He's a guy with a lot of emotional problems. His mother has never killed anybody. He's the actual killer, assuming his mom's own kind of identity. And that scene where he's peeping on her is, 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 is such a powerful scene. One of the reasons being, we don't know anything about Norman. We don't know anything really about anyone except Marion because we've never been alone in the entire film with anyone except Marion up to that point. Then she leaves the office and we're left alone with someone for the very first time who's not her. Mm -hmm. The first time it happens in the film. And all of a sudden the same Kulichov effect, we look what we what what she sees return to her face that's been following Marion throughout the entire film this far it all of a sudden is now applied to him he looks we see what he's looking at and we return to his gaze as she leaves the room as he looks at the ledger and realizes that she's lied about her name and then as he peeps on her through the wall it's all voyeuristic effect and it's applied to this new person we've never spent any time with and the film is quite literally preparing us to replace Marion and replaced mm -hmm. and and to have her replaced by this new man who's entered the picture. Yeah. Do you think that the ending of the film represents Norman Bates and Mrs. Bates as a reflection of each other or do you think that they are essentially two separate people or does it go back to the double doppelganger effect of um Villainous versus good, I guess you could say. Yeah, well, it's a doppelganger, double doppelganger, right? Norman is a dark doppelganger for Marion, and mom, mother, is a dark doppelganger for, for Norman. Right. Um, he's, a, he's a split personality. He's a schizophrenic, and he's the, the one of the personalities in his head just happens to be a woman. So it, it's this really kind of off-key, overly explained scene that everyone kind of complains about. But then it leads beautifully into that incredible haunting last scene where we're looking at Norman but we're hearing mother's voice mm -hmm. then at the end we have all these voice this voice over the top of Norman's head and right grin as he looks at the at the camera uh -huh. and says, you know you wouldn't harm a fly she wouldn't harm a fly 
I mean, just kind of crazy. A lot of these parallels that Hitch was able to kind of connect and interweave throughout all of his films. I mean, thank you so much for being on the show with us and talking oh. to us about Hitch. And it's really interesting person, really interesting filmmaker. It's very, very obvious why he is as influential as he is. We have to continue to 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 champion not just you know entertainment but art and and film as art and film as entertainment and and all of those things kind of intertwined together and um and we have to know where it all came from and and uh uh you are you know one of those people out there a young person championing uh doing the good work doing the lord's work emily and i appreciate it thank you now for some fun facts. For The Lady Vanishes, in order to get a realistic effect, Alfred Hitchcock insisted that there should be no background music except at the beginning and the end of the film. Between those two points, the only music heard is the music sung by the musician outside of the hotel, the music tune of Miss Foy, The Colonial Boggy March, music hummed by Gilbert, the dance music conducted by Gilbert in his hotel room, and the dance music when Iris meets Gilbert on the train. Francis Truffaut claimed this movie was his favorite of Alfred Hitchcock's movies and the best representation of Hitchcock's work. Michael Redgrave went to Cambridge just like his character Gilbert. He was also a chorister and took singing lessons early on in his career, which gives more credibility to Gilbert's statement that he has a quote-unquote powerful voice. Many of this movie's themes occur in the thriller, also occur in the movie Flight Plan with Jodie Foster such as someone vanishing from a moving vehicle, a dizzy woman as the only witness, and writing on the window as proof. For Notorious, after filming it ended, Cary Grant kept the famous UNICA key. A few years later, he gave the key to his great friend and co-star Ingrid Bergman, saying that the key had given him luck and hoped it would do the same for her. Many years later, at a tribute to director Alfred Hitchcock, Bergman went off script and presented the key to him to his surprise and delight. Alfred Hitchcock was his usual unflappable self during production. While in conference with Ted Sasloff on the set one day, a fire broke out. Hitchcock finished his sentence to Tesloff, turned to someone and said quite coolly, will someone please put that fire out? He then returned to his conversation. The legendary on-again, off-again kiss between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman was designed to skirt the Hays Code, which restricted kisses to no more than three seconds each. For Rear Window by most accounts, everyone was crazy about Grace Kelly. According to James Stewart, everybody just sat around and waited for her to come in in the morning so we could just look at her. She was kind to everybody, so considerate, just great, and so beautiful. Stewart also praised her instinctive acting ability and her complete understanding of the way motion picture acting is carried out. While shooting, Alfred Hitchcock worked only in Jeff's apartment. The actors and actresses in other apartments were flesh-colored earpieces so that he could radio his directions to them. James Stewart has stated that out of the four movies that he has made with Alfred Hitchcock, this one was his personal favorite. The pale green suit that Grace Kelly wears when she and James Stewart are discussing Mrs. Thorwald's purse and jewelry is strikingly similar to the Nile green suit worn by Tippi Hedren throughout Alfred Hitchcock's hit, The Birds. The costumes for both films were designed by Edith Head. Some fun facts for Psycho. When the cast and crew began work on the first day, they had to raise their right hands and promise not to divulge one word of the story. Alfred Hitchcock also withheld the ending part of the script from his cast until he needed to shoot it. 
Alfred Hitchcock originally envisioned the shower sequence as completely silent, but Bernard Herrmann went ahead and scored it anyway, and upon hearing it, Hitchcock immediately changed his mind. Walt Disney refused to allow Alfred Hitchcock to film at Disneyland in the early 1960s because he had made that quote-unquote disgusting movie psycho. After the movie's release, Alfred Hitchcock received an angry letter from the father of a girl who refused to have a bath after seeing Diabolique and now refused to shower after seeing this movie. Hitchcock sent a note back simply saying, send her to the dry cleaners. Now on to some movie recommendations of the week. I watched Gene Kelly's Living in a Big Way, which in my opinion is one of his more underrated pieces of cinema. It's a lot more emotional and a more musical tone, similar to For Me and My Gal. I think both films tend to lean more towards an emotional tone, but they definitely both have those musical and musicality inclinations within them. Next up, Danny Kay for The Court Jester. This movie is so much fun. The music is fantastic. Danny Kay is absolutely hilarious and brilliant in the role, and he's just all around such an amazing performer because he was able to do so much with the talent that he had. He acted, he sang, he danced, he did comedy. He was one of those entertainers that kind of did it all as far as being in front of the camera goes, so it's always such a joy to watch him perform. And lastly, Hitchcock's The Birds. I watched this film for the first time, and it definitely makes me very stressed out. <laughs> There's a lot of tension, a lot of stress, a lot of wondering what's going to happen next, which I guess is a normal formality for a Hitchcock film based off of the other ones that we've talked about today. As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Keep an eye out for next week's episode on the filmography of Vincent Minnelli.